Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we are learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I am your host, Raleigh Sadler, and over the past 10 years, I've started a nonprofit that helps people better care for their most vulnerable neighbors. Along the way, I've met a lot of friends who are on a similar journey, each of us learning new things about ourselves and each other with the more adversity that we face. It's easy to be critical about our workplace or our community, especially when our lives and livelihoods are affected. But here's the deal. Most of the time, we rarely see the part that we play in it. We see the part that everyone else plays in it, and we see their roles, but we don't see how we could be part of the problem. What if I told you that you are looking in the wrong place for change? What if I told you that community transformation begins at home? In 1987, Daryl had a conversation that changed the direction of his life. Working as a security guard to put himself through school, he called Harold Cruz, the author of The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, from his guard desk. Cruz, who is a friend of a friend and professor of sociology at the University of Michigan, challenged Daryl. He said that focusing solely on the black community was a 20th century project. He went on to explain that in the 21st century, things will have to change. You will have to think more broadly and you will have to have a more multi-ethnic and multicultural view of the needs of marginalized people. After the conversation, Daryl knew that he would have to change the way he approached life and ministry. Today, I am joined by Daryl Williamson, the pastor of Living Faith Bible Fellowship in Tampa, Florida. He has contributed to two books, 12 Faithful Men, Portraits of Faithful Endurance and Pastoral Ministry, and All Are Welcome toward a multi-everything church. And he's also been featured in my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. Daryl currently sits on the board of the Gospel Coalition. I'm excited to be here, Raleigh. I always enjoy our conversations. They're provocative. Uh, I'm really (laughs) looking forward to this. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, we're always honest. We seem in every conversation, we don't really back down. (laughs) And even if we disagree, we work through it and we have a great conversation that I think both of us typically benefit from. Amen, brother. And so this conversation isn't going to be much different. And so you had this conversation with Harold Cruz and it shatters the glass ceiling for you. What did you do next? First of all, brother, I I can't overstate the importance and impact of that conversation. I was as an undergraduate, junior, senior year, very much committed to trying to enfranchise, to to see as, as much as I could as a student to see empowerment in uh, the black community and wanting to think through how we could develop the competencies and just, um, you know, a framework for pursuing that in our life's work. Cruz just really pushed out the walls, brother, and just really helped me to see, first of all, that in the interest of black people, it's the first thing, in the interest of black people, that it's important that we think collaboratively and that we realize that black people can no longer merely flourish within the confines of what we could call segregated communities where you have, you know, doctors, lawyers, folks who start businesses largely relying on the patronage of black people. And that was great in segregation, (laughs) but the landscape is changing. And it's important then that, that black people, entrepreneurs, educators, are able to to engage in a much broader landscape 
and learn to flourish there. And I think even more, just as important, is to see the landscape of need much more broad. And not just think about, okay, what do we need in our community? But to see the commonality between what our Latino brothers and sisters are dealing with in the context of Boston, poor whites in South Boston, realizing that there are a lot of common systemic issues that affect all those communities and begin to discern those needs more broadly because the solutions will need to be broad. You'll need broad buy-in from more than just the black community. And even though there's a need to continue to think about kind of home base, uh, it is vital to really connect that to all those who have a shared interest in those kinds of outcomes. And so I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't prepared for it. I processed it with, with friends of mine. I, mean, I recall a conversation I had with two friends of mine. We were sitting at a cafe on Com Ave uh, in Boston, just kind of talking through what Cruz said and what it meant. This one friend of mine, this Jamaican sister, she said to me, she said, Daryl, but don't you know that white people don't like black people? And so we, we got to think about what we need. And I was not moved by what she said. I just realized that, you know, we got to get serious about really trying to connect in a very collaborative way. And, you know, I think in some ways I haven't thought about this uh, this way before, but I think, you know, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, 84 and 88, yeah. kind of represented that in some ways. It, it was a political kind of, you know, and but there was objective. broad collaboration. Broad collaboration. And frankly, I think we saw that flourish most fully in 2008 with the coalition that put Barack Obama into office. And so, and I think what we see politically is a metaphor for what we can see in other, other parts of our society and culture as well, is that we can find ways to work together. I think we can, we can see some significant, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish here, but I think that that is a way for us to really advance the interests of our communities if we're collaborative. Now, do you think that this idea was something that the Black community tried before, like with Black Wall Street and things like that, and then there was constant pushback? Yeah, I mean, so I think- To to where people didn't think it was going to happen? I mean, I think that the opportunities that we have for collaboration between the cultures probably expired, you know, in, um, frankly, at the end of Reconstruction, I think I mean, mm-hmm. sort of the end of the 19th century kind of codified literally, right, legally, uh, segregation. And so the only way that could be Black flourishing then was going to be in the context of the walls of Black communities. And, and Black communities could do that safely and successfully as long as folks outside the community weren't peering in and not liking that flourishing. Right. Uh, and so that's what kind of led to what you saw in Tulsa. That's what you kind of saw with Rosewood right here in Florida. And so when, when folks saw that, and it's what's crazy. And this gets, this, this can be provocative some people because it can kind of, you know, get into what's been called white fragility. But what's happened historically is that people outside the black community would see black flourishing and be offended. Mm-hmm. And that offense was a problem. But, but as long as, you know, inside these black communities, this flourishing could occur largely in, you know, apolitical ways, right? Where it's just kind of folks working inside segregation, um, you know, people patronizing black businesses, their doctors are black, the dentists are black. Then there was a measure of enfranchisement and flourishing. For example, uh, take my, so my own family story. My mom's dad was a Pullman porter who sent three daughters 
through college in the 40s. Mm. And so that kind of thing was happening. We haven't taken it seriously, Raleigh, is that th- there, was, there was measures of advance. I mean, my mom, her two sisters, she was the youngest. Her older two sisters not only went through college, but also got master's degrees in the 40s. And so this is what this was happening inside the kind of flourishing that was occurring inside segregation has not gotten its due study, bro. No. Uh, and so it, w- it was happening in meaningful ways, but it was also in that it was not enough. Is that the fact that- Because the systems were kind of closing it right. in. It, exactly. You had to have a Rosewood. You had to have a Black Wall Street because there was no opportunity for collaboration because- There was not. Yeah. Because, I mean, frankly, one, if you were trying to collaborate out there, it would not be just, right? So that's the first thing. And then two, um, it would you simply would run into racism. But it's fascinating that that could happen but what Cruz was getting at, largely because of black people who were flourishing in the 20th century as they were, you know, getting jobs and successful businesses and stuff like that, were moving out of the black community. They were moving into, you know, communities that had, you know, white and other cultures and ethnicity. So we had to find a way, we got to find a way to find that kind of flourishing in shared spaces. And to realize that, you know, the same deposit of humanity that God gave to other communities is also given to the black community. And that really the American project really needed the walls of segregation to come down. And and I think Cruz's kind of pluralistic kind of language is something that I think is consistent with what God would have wanted people to have all along in an eclectic nation like America. You and I have talked about, we actually had this conversation in my book, Vulnerable about how my hometown is divided by a state highway. Right. And the community of color is on one side of that highway, the west side, and more Caucasian folks are on the east side. But everyone went to high school together. Mm -hmm. And so, so many of us came to high school where there were a lot of students whose parents didn't interact with other people. Right. But here we all are in this big melting pot interacting getting to know each other. I just went to my 25th high school reunion and I just marveled at how beautiful it was, how, how multicultural it was, how there were people who literally grew up in some very similar, but some very different situations, but we were all better to have each other in our Amen. lives. And so you talk about how the game starts changing as mm-hmm. people start moving to different communities. Now we have to look at our model. Now we have That's to right. look at the model that we've always operated under. And you're having this conversation with Cruz and he's saying, you're going to have to change the model. You're going to have to change the way you think. You were taught this, but the world is changing. That's right. And so what were your next steps? So I think for for me personally, first of all, I mean, the Air Force put me through college. So I literally had to go into the Air Force. So that was my literal next step. And so I went into the Air Force as a systems analyst, got out of the Air Force and then continued to work in technology for a while. What it meant for me though, very early on in ministry, was a strong conviction around multi-ethnic, multicultural gospel community. Mm. And that conviction, often we talk about that in terms of how it represents, which is good. It represents heaven, what heaven's going to be. Uh, it represents the power of the gospel, which I think is true, which really says the power of the presence of the spirit of God amongst the people of God, that we can have a multicultural, multi-ethnic community. But I think we also need to see the formational value for us 
for, for Americans is that multi-ethnic community, as if, if it's true, and I think it is, that racism is America's original sin. I, th- I think that's true. The cure for that is multi-ethnic, multicultural community. That's not just true with churches. That's true in general. One of the challenges that we have around races is prejudice. But prejudice is an involuntary reaction. So prejudice, bias, is not a decision. It is a reaction. It's an impulse, right? It's an instinct. It is like some kind of mental muscle memory. The way to, if you will, cure that is by, I'll just say it like this, and I mean this literally, is rewiring our brains to find affinity with people who are different from us. Mm-hmm. And so the only way that can happen is not by, you know, an occasional annual event between the black church and the white church and Hispanic church coming together for a big picnic. But it's got to be sitting and doing life regularly together. That regular could be on a job. Okay. It could be in a church. It also could be in a neighborhood as well, obviously, if we're really engaging with our, our neighbors. All of that rewires our thinking about who people are. And over time, it reforms our biases. And so, which really means this, what do I see when I look at a person? Who do I see? And this is kind of, you know, pre-rational. And so before I remember the kind of diversity training that I got, I have a perception. And so that perception can be reshaped by our experiences, our organic lives. That's why to me, brother, the most essential, one of the most essential projects for the church in America today, North America, is multi-ethnic, multicultural gospel community that has an eye toward restorative justice. And so those two things is the project. It, 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 is, it, is, it is the environment where our theologies, and I'm saying that with plural, plurally intentionally, our theologies can be refined and tailored for the moment. We just can't think about a theology and you just kind of read the Bible and what does it mean? And so it's really about the life of God amongst the people of God, right? That can only be really dealt with in a way that can be helpful to us when we are pursuing that in the context of multicultural, multi-ethnic gospel community. And I think that embodiment of that idea would ultimately impact your community because now your faith community looks like your external community. It looks like your neighborhood. It looks like your supermarket. It looks like your movie theater. It looks like everything around you. And so now you're no longer this mausoleum on the corner. You're a mission center. You are reaching out to people. You are relevant because you're speaking the same language as the community. You know, you were talking about this idea of restorative justice and you were couching it with this idea of multiculturalism or this lens through which to see the church. And I remember when I was a campus minister at a historically black college and university in West Virginia, which is a historically Mm -hmm. white state. I had a couple of mentors in the African-American community who really took me under their wing. And one of them, his name was Bishop James Stockton. I'll never forget. Bishop Stockton pulls me aside and says, you get the gospel. And that's good. I'd recently graduated from seminary. I was feeling pretty good about myself. And he's like, you get the gospel, but what do you know of justice? Mm. What do you know of mercy? 
And what I knew from my time at the HBCU was that I was not trusted as a Caucasian person. I would be told by students, even students who hadn't even listened to my messages or ever talked with me, they're like, well, this is a white person. He's bringing slave masters religion. And so for me, it became a time where I needed to listen and I needed to learn. Wow. And so I just got to know the students. I got to know what they were processing. Mm -hmm. I was working for a denominational agency and sending students to our affiliate churches. And this student from DC was so kind. He comes up to me and goes, hey, Raleigh, thank you so much for suggesting that I go to that church. That's good. But Here's a problem. I was the only person that looked like me at that church and people were staring and it made me feel uncomfortable. Mm. And I started realizing that bridging the gap was, was difficult, especially because I was trying to empathize with my students. But for me, I couldn't understand wow. what they were going through. I couldn't understand what it was like to walk around in Walmart and be followed just because of the color of your skin. And so we're dealing with this And I found like just my heart was being broken because, you know, for so many years I was blind to that. Mm, That's good, brother. When you have a multi-ethnic community of faith, I would assume that it's messy. Amen. I would assume that you're bringing people who have completely different perspectives and people who just don't understand what the other is processing. Amen. And there's a clashing of ideas and ideals. But how have you seen that change the mentality of the people that you pastor? Yeah, brother. First of all, the scenario that you described is essential. And so I think that's how we change. That's why it's so important to realize the the formational how of diversity. And and, and not just mutual understanding, not just, okay, great. I, I know some things I didn't know before, but it changes you. And so what you described was a formational journey for yourself in a, a in an emergent sense of empathy for that person and said, hey, here's how I feel when I'm in that environment. I'm feeling isolated. Here are things I experienced. I experienced going into stores and people are actually watching me. And so, and, and one way that works for you and leads you into formation is because your relationship connection with the person that's sharing that with you, you care for them. Mm-hmm. You love this brother. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you've gotten to know him. And so his words are trustworthy. Yeah. And so because of that now, so if, if you simply instead bring people together who don't have their relationship connection to talk about these issues, it's just going to be, you know, a back and forth about what you, what you think. And, and, and you would never achieve. There's no changing rec- of perspective. There's no reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Reconciliation is always relational. It's not just like some kind of right. perception conformity, right? Where we, get to see this, we arrive in the same place. Yeah. And so I, I think, brother, that is, that is so essential. You know, one of the things that, that the Wesleyans experienced uh, when the Wesleyan societies were being established in England was the upper class folks and the lower class folks were in the same community and the richer folks were seeing what their poor brothers and sisters were dealing with in their workplaces how they were being injured and they became advocates for them because they saw the harm they were experiencing. That's what we need in our churches today. We need that kind of community melding. Now, have we experienced that living faith? You asked kind of how, how we've kind of gotten to that. I think that one of the things that we have, we have a, we have a diverse church. There's no majority culture 
color or anything like that in our church. Now, we're about 40 to 45% black on a Sunday morning. But we have, I guess there's another dimension for us because it's also generational. We have seen a lot of folks to just kind of build with one another and, you know, various times and places hanging out uh, life together. And you begin to see genuine affection for each other. It's a fantastic thing to see. Now, is it a panacea? Is it, you know, has the kingdom come? No, of course not. And there's still a natural tensions. But I think those tensions, though not always, but most of the time, the tensions that emerge are simply human personal things that happen in any church. And we're not wrestling typically with the big divisive issues of the day. Like our church, we did not have a lot of division around masks. We had some, but not a lot. We did not have George Floyd was a, was a coalescing moment in our church by and large and not a moment of trial. And so everyone in the church felt the pain and felt the harm. And so that's been the real benefit, I think, of being in that kind of diverse space where there is genuine affection for, for, for one another is that we did not shed people. You know, it's interesting because I lived in New York when Eric Garner was killed. Wow. And I remember teaching about that on a Sunday morning. And I remember someone coming up to me saying, what did you do? Why did you talk about that? And what I found was in New York, it was easy to put your head in the sand and act like these things weren't happening. But at the end of the day, someone should not die in relation to selling Lucy cigarettes. Amen. Someone should not die over that. Amen. And so there should be an investigation. There should be people held accountable. But I just remember that being a very divisive time, a divisive moment. But then I start noticing that the same people, their eyes are being opened. But I don't think our eyes are truly opened until we actually get to know the person who... I think, I think that's right. Yeah, who has a different experience of life. Like you talked about community melding and you said that you don't get there overnight. And I think that's, that's got to be right because before you love your neighbor and care yeah. about what affects your neighbor, you have to actually see your neighbor. Amen. Then you have to talk to your neighbor. Yes. Then you have to have conversations where you agree and disagree with your neighbor. Amen. But through that relational buildup, yes. you're beginning to love your neighbor. Now the things that your neighbor cares about, you start to empathize with, you start to care for, even though it might be a different story than right. you've ever experienced. Yeah. And so you're leading this church in Tampa, Florida, in a community that's changing. That's very diverse. That's yeah. right. And it's just like, and it's a beautiful community. And great things are happening here. You're leading them to engage their community. What has that looked like? Yeah. And that's something that we have really kind of made as a North Star for us. We want to engage our community. And, and we want to, in particular, we want to be accommodating of everyone that's here. It's everyone's in the neighborhood. And, and every church, I think, is more than just a neighborhood church. So our church is comprised of people from all over Tampa Bay. But we want to be a redemptive presence. And we also want to especially be a redemptive presence for those in our neighborhood who are marginalized. And by that, we mean they are vulnerable. They're vulnerable to the changes in the neighborhood. There's a lot of gentrification that's happening here. I think we often see that as a four-letter word. It's not. I think gentrification is a natural part of cities' evolution. So we, we want to we recognize that at the same time, 
There are right. people who are being victimized by it. Absolutely. And so people and, who are being priced out. Who are being priced out. People mm-hmm. and not just, you know, folks who are just renters. I mean, even folks who the tax changes and the increased insurance rates are themselves also helping to push people out who can't afford what's happening in the community around us. We want to serve those who are marginalized. And, and one, one way we're doing that is to connect with the public schools in the area. And so we have a relationship with the elementary school that's right up the street, Foster Elementary. And what's interesting, Raleigh, is that we have decided that our focus would be not so much on the students, but on the faculty and staff. And so we want, we feel at least right now, our calling to strengthen what's happening in that school, in our community, is to strengthen the faculty and staff who are who are serving to show them appreciation. We also know that many of them are financially, economically challenged. Teachers are greatly underpaid. And so there's a food pantry there. The pantry is for the community, but it's also being used to serve the faculty and staff. We want as a church, we're asking the, the question we've asked, we, we met with two leaders from the school just, just last week. We asked, what can we do to strengthen them? If that means we need to find resources to augment their pay, then we'll look for those resources. If it means that we need to find folks who can fund further education for them, we'll do that. If we simply need to come in and give them a break so they can go and have an extended lunch, we'll do that. And so whatever needs to be done, we want to target, we want to target strengthening those faculty and staff. We believe that one of the best ways we can strengthen education in that school and in our neighborhood is by those folks who are serving in that capacity. They feel seen. They, whatever their resources are, if we can help lighten the load for them, we think that furthers the cause for the kids and their families in our neighborhood. So you've seen the students impacted as you are caring for the teachers. Well, that's our new strategy, a 2023 strategy. Okay. But we certainly see the encouragement for the teachers and the things that we've done, the, the breakfasts, the lunches that we've done. And so, but we want to take that deeper. And we believe that will affect the quality of education, their commitment to the classroom. We think all those things are going to go up when we strengthen the faculty and staff. Well, I love that because a lot of times people don't think about the faculty and staff. They think, oh, well, they have enough money and they have enough time. And And oftentimes they don't. They are struggling with things just like any other human being, but they're supposed to go back to work the next day and care for 20 to 30 students. And it's really hard to give good one-on-one time to these students when you're not even able to give that time to yourself. That's right. And so you're able to come in and say, hey, we want to help you. We want to help you care for yourself. We want to make sure your needs are met so that the future of this community is being cared for, educated properly, so that they can lead well exactly. in the next couple of years. That is exactly right. I think that's exactly right. So one of the things we're hoping for is to, there, there are two dimensions that we're focused on in, in, in terms of mission in our neighborhood. Education is one, economics is the other. And so from an educational standpoint, we're, I just had a meeting about this this morning with, with another leader in our community. Can we see over the next several years, if we, th- if, we, if we were to look at the waterline right now and we were to baseline where we are, education, educational performance, can we see that needle change over the next five years in our community through our serving? We, we're not the sole reason, obviously, 
but can we provide encouragement, affirmation, and advocacy? And if we need to also some augmented education, mentoring, after school stuff, we're, we're willing to do that as well if, if, if that needs to be done. But we are, we're searching for ways to see the needle move. Everything we're asking ourselves about mission, we're saying, how can we see a meaningful impact crater for what we do? We don't want to just do things. We know we can stuff backpacks. We know we can do things like that. And you could do the projects we, we, all day we long. Do that and, and yeah. That's right. And everybody would feel like we made a difference. That becomes more about, it's like doing, it's like, it's like. Oh, and that's addictive yeah. too. It, because addictive. now we're like. It's self-congratulatory. Absolutely. Right. And I feel like that can lead to virtue signaling. Well, right. Look at what, look at what I've done. I just handed out a million backpacks. Of course we care for the community. Right. Exactly. You know, I, I handed out turkeys at Thanksgiving. Exactly. And, and I'm not, I'm not, not a bad thing. I'm not disrespecting turkey handouts. I mean, that's great. It it's most certainly is. And people need turkeys, but. I know your work. I know my work with Let My People Go. Right. That's right. It's to help people not yes. do everything, right. but to do something on a consistent basis. That's exactly and right. And that could be having a conversation. That could just be putting yourself in the path of people who are different than you. That's right. But I think we oftentimes get overwhelmed because we're like, well, I'm going to have to do this, 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 and this. And no. Right. Just do something. Amen. And you're free because the gospel frees you. Mm. To do something and, and you don't have to do it perfectly. You're loved by God. So you're free to love others. That's right on, brother. And when you talk about this idea of redemptive presence. Yes. Yes, brother. Take me into that idea. I, I, I would love to, to force it to, to, to chop that and process that. So biblical justice is fundamentally restorative, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, is, it, it is about enfranchising, empowering. So if you think about like the Jubilee. Right. Or, or think about like the Sabbath year. All those are intended to strengthen, to restore those who have experienced various kinds of brokenness. And I think those, if we think about like Old Testament kind of an ethos, that kind of restoration is at the heart of it. And so there's no doubt that when people are in moments of need, you know, you think about the, the, the gleaning laws, you want people to be sustained. So so the, the reason why you think about Matthew 25, 31 through 46, that whole thing when Jesus talks about, you know, when I was naked, when I was hungry, mm-hmm. all those are sustaining ministries, right? Those are, those are sustaining things, yeah. but they're not to be, for the person receiving it, biblically, it's not meant to be normative. And so it's meant to be restorative. And so, so redemption is all about Healing brokenness, our, our brokenness and our sin. Christ's vision for us is not just in our atonement, but also in our discipleship. And so we are intended to spiritually flourish in Christ. So it's not just making us safe for the day of judgment. And so when we're in Christ, we're intended to have a new kind of life now. So the spirit of God dwells amongst the people of God. And so likewise, as we bring the love of Christ to communities in a redemptive way, it is intended to bring renewal to not just the infrastructure, but to people themselves. Redemption is fundamentally human, right? And so it's our souls. It's finding a new hope. It's, there was, I wasn't sure what my options were in life before I met Christ. Now I've met him and I see my dignity. I'm in this community of people who know and love Jesus. It's given me new hope for this life. And yes, we are all hoping for the perusia, right? The return of Christ. 
That's our ultimate hope. But this world is not a throwaway. Christ has meaning and value for us now. And so we need to embrace that with all of our hearts and live that out faithfully and fruitfully. And I think it's what missions intended. And I think that's beautiful. But I also know that when you talk about things like this, people push back because people get scared. They think that you're saying things that you're not saying. But what would you say to someone who said, well, Daryl, like the year of Jubilee was not implying a welfare state. Like, how would yeah. you respond to that? Because when I talk about churches engaging their marginalized neighbors and caring for yes. vulnerable people, sometimes I'll get that pushback from yes. people because they're scared, they're nervous, they just feel uneasy. Yes. And so I'm able to talk about it, but how would you respond in that moment? So, so there, there are a couple of things that come to mind. I th- the first thing I would ask them is, well, how do you think we should practice this? So how should we, how should you, how should we in our churches, how should we practice this Jubilee ethos? How do we do that? How do we practice this Sabbath year ethos? Let's talk about how we can walk within that. I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is an example of an individual walking in that ethos. And so how do we do that? That's the first thing I would want to. Let's not first talk about what it's not. Let's talk about what our obligations are as neighbor-loving people of Christ. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say to them, and I think this is, this is essential, I think this is a real tough thing for us as Christians to understand, is the scope of the need is tremendous. And so when people say things like the church, the church is doing what it's supposed to do. We wouldn't have poor people. We wouldn't have, we need, we need a welfare state. Well, just in terms of the scale of poverty and that we're experiencing in our society, it's not even practical for the church to take that. The church can take it on. There are spheres of influence that we have, and we need to be faithful, Christ-like people in those, in those spheres of influence. But what are we to do? about the degree of poverty that exists in our urban centers, that's existing in rural areas across this country. How do we take on the volume of that disenfranchisement? We need to be righteous people. We need to require that our government takes on much of that because we are invested through our taxes and our citizenship, and we need to be good stewards of that And that means that we have expectations of our government to act righteously. We see that around the issue of abortion, for example, and we rightly, I think, should want to see that the government is working to save the lives of of those who are not yet born. We are right to require that kind of righteousness from our government. We are right to see that our government is going to advocate for things that are going to allow our families to flourish. We are right, I think, to ask our government to ensure that the stewardship that God has of his image bearers of this planet, that we are doing things to ensure that we are not ignorant of what's happening with climate change, that we're not poisoning our waters, that these are things that we are going to righteously do. I think To be righteous requires a concern for the poor that meets the scale of the need. And that implies, whether we call it welfare state or whatever, if it's good for the church to do, it's good for everybody to do. And so acting righteously does not mean it's reserved for the church. It means that it's virtuous Mm -hmm. and the church should be virtuous. But God judges everyone, brother. That Revelation 20 moment will judge all of humanity on its virtue or virtuelessness. And so we're judged by what we do wrong or right. So Paul said right to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we almost said, we must go before the judgment seat of Christ, give an answer for what we have done in the body, 
whether good or bad. That's true for every human being. And so we are right. We are righteous when we expect that kind of righteousness from our government, city, state, federal. And so we have to push the categories out and right, left. We need to lose that in our, in our, in our policy dialogue and ask ourselves, what's the righteous thing to do? Well, I'm enjoying this conversation because really the idea that we started the podcast with how when we are changed, when our lives are disrupted, right. that will ultimately lead to transformation in our communities. Yes. Especially when we pull that thread, we will yes. start to see people, we'll start to engage with people, we'll start to care about what they're caring about. Yes. And then we start to advocate for them. That's right. It's hard to advocate for people whose needs you don't see know or care for. Yes. But when you actually get involved and you learn to love this person and you start to realize that maybe the world doesn't lay out like you think it does, maybe there is another perspective or blind spot that you have that a perspective that you need. Yes, brother. And as humans, we need each other, right? We would agree with that. We need each other. And it's interesting. I remember when I started Let My People Go, a few people pulled me alongside and they were like, well, is this social gospel? And I'm like, no, I'm not equating giving a cup of water absolutely with the gospel, or I'm not giving someone a cup of hot soup and saying, all right, I've given them the gospel. I think we should proclaim the gospel and demonstrate it. That's exactly right, brother. But to demonstrate it, we have to be embodied. We have to be there. We have to be part of the community. Yes. And when your church looks like the community and your church represents the community, one thing we do with Let My People Go is we say, we want to help your church identify who's most vulnerable in your community. And we'll we'll send you out to do a community needs assessment. And then we'll help you process what you find. And then we want to help your church do some projects to, you know, give you kind of a low lift of here's how we do it. And then we're going to help you collaborate with the local stakeholders that are in a community already Mm -hmm. doing the work. And then you'll be free. You'll be free to do that work. You'll be free to step out and do it when you're at the grocery store, when you're driving off the exit and you see someone. You will no longer be afraid. You'll no longer be overwhelmed because you will have done something. Amen. And what you've been describing is that when we are changed to the point where we can't go back to the way we were. That's right. You cannot go back to your security guard desk and be okay. You knew you had to do something. That's right. And you didn't know what it was going to look like. Yes. Like this isn't something that happens overnight. You were being formed. You were experiencing this radical transformation. You went into the Air Force. Mm -hmm. You did that, but you couldn't shake this. So you were teasing out these principles in the Air Force. But now you're leading a church and you're saying, we want to look like the kingdom. Amen, brother. And we want to look like what the kingdom looks like in Seminole Heights. That's exactly right. And so I'm sure many of the listeners are thinking, Mm -hmm. how do I do this in my church? How am I part of this kind of transformation in my church? Do you have a couple of encouragements or challenges that you could give us as we think through what this looks like for us? Yeah, brother, I I think that that's a a great question. And our heart as a church is to see this kind of formational space, the, the, the compelling nature of diversity and its relationship to formation. We want to see that all over the landscape. And so that, that's certainly our heart. I think that there are two key aspects to this. One is, I think, theological. 
I think we do need to understand God's heart for diverse gospel community and God's heart for restoration within and from those communities, a redemptive, restorative community that's grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ in that is profoundly pneumatological, right? In the presence of the Spirit is there. We need to understand that the gospel is more than just an idea believed. It is an encounter with God himself. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things that perhaps evangelicals, even, you know, I guess I can call this maybe my kind of neighborhood, reformed evangelicals, we need to rediscover the compelling presence of the spirit of God. Yeah. And so, and so I think that we, so there needs to be this theology. And I think that theology, in addition to kind of the presence of the spirit of God, is recognizing that one of the, the, the main thing he does in the gospel is that, is that we are regenerate, right? And so that God does a new work in us. We are a new humanity. So we are ontologically, brother, a new kind of human being. And so, and so if you an think- absolute transformation. absolute transformation. When you think about when, when Peter says that we are a chosen race, right? And so he's talking about a genos, right? Mm-hmm. And so we are a new kind, we're a new class, a new kind of human being. When we embrace that, when we understand that theologically, then that begins to play out in our spirituality, right? And so that's where the community, that's where the spirit really comes alive amongst the people of God. And so we then recognize that God necessitates, he, all this entails that these new kinds of people are living yeah. together in a new kind of community. Yeah. yeah. And so we, there, there's no, if, if we're not, something is wrong, either we're missing something we need to be taught, discipled, or worse, right? Something ontologically has not happened. That I'm not born again from above. Is that a community that doesn't want the people of God to be together across these kinds of cultural, ethnic identities and see a new identity emerge? If you're guarding the past, the legacy, this thing that we've had for so many years. Yeah. If we, if we aren't longing for the new thing, Something's wrong, brother. Now, I think in many cases, what's wrong simply is we haven't been discipled appropriately. Or we've never got a taste of the new thing. We've taste never experienced thing. it because, yes, all we know is what we've experienced. And so now you have pastors around the country that yes. they're doing their best, but they're trying to keep the lights on. They're trying to right. keep people in the pews. Right. And I was told when I started my ministry, the guy said, good luck. I got fired for trying to help my church address those in the margins. Wow. He's like, I was fired for this. He's like, have fun. And there's a lot of people who have wounds because they have tried to get people who are very comfortable. Yes. Because with comfort, there's a certainty, you know? Yes. With certainty, there's a lack of risk. With a lack of risk, there's a lack of growth. Yes. (laughs) And ultimately, we need that to grow into who we are. Yes, brother. And so you're telling churches, you're saying, okay, you want to be part of a move of God yes. and you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, then you need to put yourself on the track where we, we even see the early church. The it's early exactly church right. was made up of vulnerable, marginalized yes. people reaching out to vulnerable and marginalized people. Right. I believe when we realize that we are vulnerable and that yes. we have things that we're processing, when we understand that, there's no longer an us and them. There's just us. And Amen. so we're free to love our neighbor. And so you're trying to help us realize that it's the place that we fear the most where we will find God. I think that's right, brother. So, I, I, so there's a dilemma that we have. 
I think, I think you said it well, because there is risk. And cruciformity calls us to kind of hug the cactus, right? Where we, we, we just embrace it. We understand that, mm-hmm. we, that we may get fired. Mm-hmm. The alternative to that, that I think we need to really, really consider is as opposed to martyrdom is movement to create new spaces. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, I think, I think one of the ways we can do that is by planting churches. As opposed to me trying to lead my church, this tradition church, it could be where, where it's like it's been monocultural for many years and folks are just settled in. They love each other and you know, we're, we're a white church or we're a black church and trying to move them is may cause me to get shot. One thing I can do is to plant and maybe convince them to support this work because the real risk is in the change. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not the principle, it's the experience. And so if you convince, yeah, I believe in diversity. I think it's good for us to do multicultural churches that are redemptive and restorative. And okay, great. Well, one way you can be a part of that is by supporting us planting and establishing these churches. Or if there's a revitalization that's necessary, revitalizing it in that way. That's what happened with us is that we became diversity in the context of a revitalization. We'd gotten down to about 12 people when we went through a major crisis back in, in 2009. And so a revi- the revitalization was not be staying as a black church. It was always my heart for us to be multicultural, multi-ethnic. We're going to pursue this diversity. And folks are like, brother, the people in our church were like wary but supporting. Yeah. The conference leadership, Converge Conference leadership said to me, don't do it. And so there was all these barriers, but we pursued it. And so I think as opposed to trying to bring change, sometimes you have to just simply find a space to pursue, to put the new wineskins in place. And so, and I think that's something that folks can, and I think that's always the dilemma. Do I act for change here or do I go and pursue it outside of this? And I, I'm asking that question now for some things I'm involved with. Fortunately, not at our church. Our church is all about it. Yeah. And so I'm not having to rest. Praise God. We're like, we're on the track pursuing it. We're running down the track trying to figure out the issues. We're not trying to convince folks about the direction. But there are other places where I think there are some, there's dilemmas. And I'm often asking myself, okay, great. Do we pursue change? Or do we not pursue that change and find a way to just go after it? I'll say one other quick thing to that. Why is that dilemma an important thing to consider? Why not just go after the change? Why not just be patient? Because there are implications, brother, for people. The brokenness is out there. And we can't always define what we're doing by people's finally getting it one day, the awareness that finally take place. Sometimes it's necessary just to engage the need. And see, that's, that's what happened with the Reformation. I mean, Luther could have tried to work these things out inside the Catholic Church. And eventually, you know, there was a Reformation inside the Catholic Church. And that was Church. his heart. That was his, that was his, his goal. Yeah. But it got too thick. It was necessary for him to. And the truth of the matter is, is the wave of Reformation that came after that was so great, the Catholic Church could not have handled it. And so... Those are the questions for us, I think, as well, is that when we look at trying to align churches more closely with the brokenness in our neighborhoods where people are choking on if this is the social gospel, if this is socialism, or if this is a welfare state, sometimes it's best not to be caught up in those conversations 
and further the restorative agenda and deepen that theologically, spiritually, practically. And if we're simply trying to help folks that realize why we should do it, it will always be adolescent. We need it to mature. And so that's the thing we've got to constantly try to weigh and measure. And I think this is a great note to end on that when we are changed, sometimes our response may lead us to martyrdom. Mm. Other times it may lead us to movement. Yes, brother. But it's listening to the spirit, walking in step. Yes. And and really just engaging our neighbor. Mm -hmm. Because it's very easy when we're changed to keep it inside. Amen. Amen. But you'll never experience joy until you start sharing your life with other people and learning and growing and healing. Because maybe the person that you're talking to, maybe it's not your job to speak to them. Maybe they're God's answer to you. Amen, brother. And so, Daryl, thank you so much. It's been good, Ron. Yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Amen, brother. This is an important platform you have here on Godspeak, bro. If you are interested in more conversations like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. If you want bonus episodes, as well as a plethora of other resources, become a paid member at lmpg.org for $10 a month. You will get access to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dive deeper. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. We want to hear from you, so you can email us at info at mercycast.com. Till next time. Have mercy on yourselves and each other.